and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen, a college student and co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Jacqueline Linus Flanagan, visiting associate professor of law at American University Washington College of Law's Janet R. Scraggins Federal Tax Clinic, Associate Professor of Law at the University of the District of Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law, and Founder and Director of the Low Income Tax Clinic at the Clark School of Law. We will discuss her article, Holding U.S. Corporations Accountable Toward a Convergence of U.S. International Tax Policy and International Human Rights in the Pepperdine Law Review. Welcome, Professor Linus Flanagan. Thanks, Luz. Happy to be here. So let's talk about why did you write this article and what's the main crux of your argument within the paper? I wrote this article. It was a product of working with the late Quinn Skinner. She wrote um, a great deal in the area of international human rights law. And in looking at one of her papers, I said, well, you know what? The tax system has some interesting vehicles that you should look into um, that will you know, meet some of the objectives that you're seeking. Um, so through that project, it basically turned into a full paper uh, of my own. So let's talk about uh, international human rights constructs and how corporations play into that. Sure thing. So insofar as the corporate structure uh, and as far as U.S. international tax policies involved, corporations are able to set up subsidiaries abroad. So a U.S. corporation, uh, for legitimate business reasons, may set up a corporation abroad, but also as a result of that, they may also uh, be engaging in effective tax planning. And that's um, fine and important. But the sole focus of my paper, or one of the um, focus points, is the fact that corporations that do so are not only uh, affording themselves of beneficial tax structures, but they may also benefit from decreased regulation and decreased corporate accountability. So let's go on to that idea of corporate accountability particularly on foreign corporations and the Alien Tort Claims Act. What's the particular uh, accountability held there? And what's the recent jurisprudence around the Alien Tort Claims Act look like? Yeah, so the Alien Tort Statute, um, Section 28.1350 of the the U.S. Code, is really antiquated. Um, It's an 18th century principle, so it's as old as the Constitution. It was instituted by um, or signed into law by uh, former President Washington, and it essentially just says that it's one sentence, that non-U.S. citizens can file lawsuits in U.S. federal courts for violations of international law. Um, And really, uh, for decades, it's been used for um, basically to allow victims, survivors of, um, you know, abuses, uh, torture, crimes against humanities, genocide, to sue those responsible within the United States. Um, So that's been really valuable. But uh, recently, in uh, the US Supreme Court, uh, in recent rulings, they have chipped away a lot of International tax scholars, excuse me, international human rights scholars have felt that the court is really chipping away at 
uh, some of these protections. So can you expand on that a little bit, particularly in the cases, in the Kiobel cases, the Daimler cases, and the Jesno case? Surely. Uh, in 2013, that was a Supreme Court decision where uh, the court basically decided that there was a presumption against extraterritoriality in international law claims brought under the Alien Tort Statute. And essentially, they said, well, this case does not touch and concern the U.S. Uh, enough to bring a claim within the U.S. And the uh, Kiobo litigants, they were... Um, they successfully secured asylum in the U.S., but the court found that it was just too remote. The nexus was uh, too remote to allow a, um, a case to proceed against a Dutch Royal Shell for atrocities committed in Nigeria. Um, and the 2014 Daimler-Bauman uh, case essentially underscored the jurisdictional limits of American courts to adjudicate claims against foreign corporations, and there the court cited Fourteenth uh, Amendment due process principles, um, and they uh, said that the corporation needs to be at home in the jurisdiction that uh, they're being um, sued. In 2018, in Jessner v. Arab Bank, the Supreme Court, according you know to many, was uh, definitively foreclosing any finding of liability against foreign corporations under the ATS. So these cases have all served to basically uh, chip away at um, what many believe to already be a shortage in remedies for people in countries where they really have no redress for wrongs committed um, outside the U.S. So the alien uh, tort statute essentially seems to be um, emerging as uh, providing fewer protections than originally envisioned. So within your paper, you suggest using the U.S. international tax regime to address some of these human rights issues. Can you talk a little bit about the bases of the U.S. international tax regime? Sure. It doesn't seem, you know, at first blush to be a perfect match. But in actuality, uh, one of the basics of the U.S. tax regime and, and uh, something that I really like to um, look to is uh, Professor um, Yale, well, he was at Yale for many years. He's at Columbia now, but Professor Michael Gratz uh, said basically in looking at the normative analysis of the international uh, tax system uh, within the U.S., how the U.S. taxes international um, income, one of the uh, bases is what is that normative analysis? What should it look like? So if you are a corporation operating within the U.S., you create a foreign subsidiary, how should that income be taxed? And he asked a really salient question, and one that I think is really at the um, heart of my paper, is whether a nation should be concerned with equity and economic well-being for the citizens of these foreign countries uh, when creating these tax policies, or should they just attempt to maximize the well-being of its own citizens, regardless of the effect on foreigners? And that's really all uh, a long way of saying that the U.S. system essentially says you can create a subsidiary, you can um, move income abroad, and we won't tax it. There's a lot of provisions, uh, APB 23, I think, um, if, if I'm not uh, conflating that, that rule, is one of the provisions that says if you think pretty sure that you are going to keep this money abroad indefinitely, 
then you don't have to declare it as income within the U.S. And then there's other vehicles like tax holidays, there's tax breaks that essentially ignore those provisions. Um, so I think, yeah, it's accounting board principles. Um, so there's a lot in the mix in U.S. international tax policy that favors corporate structures, that favors corporations in creating um in many instances, like legal fictions, uh, there's inversions. Uh, we'll see the extent to which inversions continue to be used. They weren't used for a bit, and then there was a surge in them, and the U.S. tried to curtail them a little bit. But that's another example. And inversions are basically taking uh, a U.S. corporation and creating a headquarters in a foreign land that's a lower tax jurisdiction for the tax savings. Um, so there's a lot of different things, but at its core, the U.S. tax system is not doing enough to pull income from corporations. And in some cases, it's justified, and in some, it's not. Uh, and just one other thing that I really am always uh, amazed by is when I look at the IRS tax data book every year, they report how much taxes collected from corporations, from individuals, from nonprofits. And for many years, it's hovered less than 10% of tax revenues are collected by uh, corporate payors. And I think it was in the time of Eisenhower, it was like a third of U.S. Um, tax revenues were brought in by corporations. So clearly, the way the tax system is structured currently, it's to the benefit of corporations. And now you're compounding these tax benefits with this low corporate accountability. And so identifying that, I thought, you know what, it's a good time to write a paper about let's marry these two principles and not ignore that these realities exist. So can you explain a little bit about what the foreign tax credit is and how it affects us? Yes, the foreign tax credit, if you have established a subsidiary abroad, you can take credit for taxes that you've paid in a foreign jurisdiction. And that makes sense when you you know want to prevent double taxation. You don't want to pay taxes in the jurisdiction where the income is earned and in um, the jurisdiction where a company is uh, headquartered. So that is all rational, but these foreign tax credits also, again, can be um, manipulated. And can you talk a little bit about tax avoidance strategies? And particularly within your paper, you talk about the example of Apple Ireland. Mm -hmm. Apple is a really interesting case study. Uh, I really like what uh, the economist Joseph Stiglitz has said about Apple. Um, he basically likens them as the premier example of uh, firms cleverly using tax systems to avoid uh, paying their fair share. And I'll talk a little bit about how Apple did that through Ireland. But the one point here as well that um, Professor Stiglitz says, they're avoiding paying their fair share by attributing income and profits to corporations that are stateless, right? They are, they exist only in cyberspace. So they pay tax in no jurisdiction. And what he highlights is that companies like Apple have done this 
And meanwhile, their profits, right, their company corporate profits exist in part because basic investments by the U.S. government, the U.S. government created the internet, right? And obviously, the, you know, so much of their business model and practices is dependent and reliant on that. And yet in, you know, not paying taxes, they're not contributing to that infrastructure um, and to that development. Um, so they take from the public, but don't give back, right? Uh, so in any event, Apple is a really um, interesting study for a number of reasons. They have been very visible. They are um, really, you know, at their heart, an American company, despite using uh, vehicles like Ireland. Uh, there uh, are funny names that come out of these uh, or these uh, setups that, that they do. They they have um, there's just a, so many funny names like the double Irish, the double Irish with the Dutch sandwich. But uh, Apple and the Irish government uh, essentially now have come to terms with a structure that involved three Apple subsidiaries. There was Apple Operations International. Apple Sales International and Apple uh, Operations Europe, and they were uh, like Senate subcommittee hearings focus on their work and how they did it. But it's essentially uh, it was alleged that they received tax breaks by structuring their business with these three corporate, uh, you know, basically these three Apple subsidiaries. Apple is a U.S. company, and they. Um, essentially got what the Irish and what um, the European Commission, the EU Commission ruled that Ireland gave Apple illegal state aid worth over 13 billion euros over a decade. And now Ireland said, okay, we'll pay that back. Um, but meanwhile, I think due to all this scrutiny as well, Apple has um, in early 2018 said that they would pay 38 billion in the US for its overseas holdings. Um, and, you know, some reports say that they have like almost 300 billion held abroad. Uh, but as you can see, this is also a good example of social political pressures on corporations. Like once, you know, there's more scrutiny into transactions, uh, you know, there's uh, oftentimes a resulting in higher accountability in in the tax arena. So when we're talking about scrutiny and Apple in particular, uh, in your paper, you bring up the idea of Apple shareholders mandating human rights assessments for Apple supply chain. How will that? Right. Yes. Yes. The role of activist shareholders is an interesting one because uh, there absolutely is a role for these shareholders to play, but it's tempered a little bit uh, by the SEC. It's also uh, sometimes a minority group of shareholders, and there's even First Amendment principles that have been invoked in these scenarios where this minor, my, excuse me, minority group of activist shareholders want uh, a certain human rights, you know, assessment, risk assessment in a proxy statement. And the other shareholders may say, well, we don't necessarily adhere to this. And coupled with the inherent tension 
of the shareholder and, and the duty of the corporation to the shareholder, which is maximize profits. But again, I think we're entering um, an, an area it, where people are more aware of situations where corporate tax dodging is actually not just hurting you know, the fisc, the U.S. fisc, but also uh, inflicting harm in nations where these organizations operate. So studying what Apple shareholders have done, it's um, there's no clear path forward. It seems that sometimes, for example, the SEC will rule uh, there should be no action in this case because uh, the ordinary business exception applies. And in other cases, like the Human Rights Index, they said, okay, you know, that seems reasonable and doesn't encroach too much on the, on the you know, business rule that they often use. But on the Nero, sorry, net zero gas emission uh, that some activist shareholders wanted to see in the proxy statement for Apple, the SEC um, recommended no action. So, and that happened really close in time. So shareholder activity is really interesting to watch. But at the same time, there's much greater um, vigilance, I would say, in the connection between human rights and taxation. And some, um, uh, some I would say, probably watchdog organizations are identifying that tax compliance and um, just how aggressive tax planning is in certain you know, corporate climates should be closely watched and they should be held accountable for that. So all of that, I think, is a heartening direction uh, to go in, especially when you take into account the fact that these judicial protections are seem to be diminishing. So with that, if you want to look at it as, a, as an opportunity, you know, with the de- decrease in these uh, corporate accountability cycles as far as um, recent Supreme Court jurisdiction, excuse me, jurisprudence is concerned, saying we don't have jurisdiction to hear these claims because uh, it doesn't con- touch and concern the land because of these 14th um, Amendment um, principles, you know, and due process. And in other cases, they, you know, have evoked uh, or invoked, I should say, uh, typical like international shoe um, principles that, you know, are textbook early law school. And so it's interesting to see all of what the Supreme Court has done. And on the other end, there is a rising visibility of how corporations are structuring their business transactions and a rising concern internationally of how that affects uh, foreign direct investment, how it affects individuals who are living in, um, in many cases, impoverished countries that are not getting the benefit of these tax revenues that are, in some cases, not being collected by any jurisdiction. So how can international tax law promote human rights accountability? In my work, I looked at the tax code and I uh, studied what is available within the current infrastructure because I think in in large part seeing if we can uh, assist and, and really address this issue without reinventing the wheel. and. There is a section of the Internal Revenue Code, Section 999. It deals with anti 
boycott provisions uh, insofar as uh, countries that participate in anti-Israel boycotts. And that infrastructure is something that dovetails really nicely with the goal of uh, implementing greater protections uh, and really uh, providing incentives. So in my paper, I talk about how Apple, for instance, if uh, the uh, if Code Section 999 was implemented to include an element of uh, vigilance in uh, international human rights, uh, human rights risk assessments, supply chain um, investments in making you know sounds uh, supply chains. If that existed, that is one of the vehicles in which Apple can say, "Look, we adhere to this tenet. We follow it closely. Uh, international human rights and human rights writ large are important to us." So I think that that perfect, uh, you know. Avenue exists, and I think this is just an introduction to explore that as a potential vehicle, uh, particularly for U.S. corporations, uh, because it has been very clear that the use of social media, raising awareness, raising visibility of these issues is something that is important. And uh, when it comes to you know movements, it is not within... Um, or I should say it's it's definitely within the reach of the U.S. population if they found that a company like Apple, for example, if they breached in a really um, egregious way international human rights principles, uh, that there would be ways to hold them accountable. And again, marrying the principle of tax and international human rights, it's actually a more natural fit than people may initially, um, than they may initially perceive, right? So let's expand a little bit on section 999 of the tax code and the anti, what the anti-deferral regime is and the impacts of the South African apartheid divestment movement is for today's international human rights advocates. Yeah. The international human rights arena, this is not the first time uh, that, so it's not really a case of first impression where the U.S. has, in fact, used anti-deferral regimes or basically saying we will not let you defer income if we find politically right that it's income that should be recognized by the U.S. due to an exception, a carve-out that we implement. Um, so you're uh, invoking the apartheid movement there actually had been success in the past where um, in uh, the prior application of this anti-deferral uh, regime or essentially foreign tax credits being denied to um, companies. They, meaning Congress, successfully got U.S. companies to divest uh, because of this strong interest in opposing apartheid. And there are absolutely uh, designated extreme risk human rights countries. So countries where there has been a recognized heightened risk of international or, you know, and also local human rights violations, Sudan, Pakistan, DRC, Somalia, Myanmar, uh, Yemen, and Nigeria are among those. And Myanmar, Coca-Cola, Chevron, they both 
operate subsidiaries in the country. In 2008, Chevron faced political pressure and Congress considered revoking these U.S. tax deductions that Chevron was actually entitled to take as foreign tax credits uh, because of uh, payments that were made to a repressive military junta that was connected to a pipeline project in the region. And they ultimately, for other complex reasons, uh, Senator Feinstein was pivotal in the decision not to prevent them um, from uh, garnering these credits and not divest from the region because they, she essentially said they're going to be replaced by something far worse. So what's, what's the point in it? But ultimately, the, um, the vehicles that are available to the U.S., have been used before. So, you know, it's like, you know, it's possible, you know, they can, but the political will is always the question. Um, And that is, you know, really another um, obstacle, right, to implementing something that absolutely is already there, that can be used. And by that, I mean, um, Code Section 999, it's there, it's available to be used, and whether or not corporations will take advantage of it, and should Congress choose to implement it, is another story. But I think the importance is in identifying these issues and identifying that there are solutions, and and at the same time, really providing another avenue for corporations who absolutely do have interests in maintaining sound uh, corporate social responsibility standards of providing them an outlet to do so and to also overall acknowledge that tax and tax compliance absolutely overlaps with the international human rights um, you know movement so th- that's an important recognition so another tool that can be used is mandatory reporting and one of the Examples you bring up in your paper is Treasury's uh, mandatory requirement to report if a company is involved with the Israeli boycott, divestiture, and sanctions movement. How can that help the human rights uh, campaigners here? Yes. So the reporting requirement right now, and it's a pretty strict one because it has to be within like a 10% ownership interest currently. Uh, and then again, the level to which it's implemented right now is is a different uh, story. But in the human rights context, if there are corporations that are known violators, uh, and by that I mean they contract, they have subcontractors, they have... Um, it's essentially the clean human rights record is what you want and what you strive for. And you want accountability. You want corporations to say, you know, we want clean supply chains. We want to do business with local, because uh, sometimes what happens essentially is that at the local level, right, there is corruption, there's bribery, there's uh, situations that make the local um, workplace really oppressive for these, you know, native workers. And so you want corporations to acknowledge, we check the records of our local contractors. We make sure that there's accountability. We make sure that there's, you know, again, clean, uh, work areas and there's, um, there's a, a protection in place. And again, that there's redress. And that brings us back to, U.S. Supreme Court jurisprudence, because if you have 
a local forum for redress of wrongs, then perhaps you don't need to use the U.S. as the forum to bring a claim. The big concern has been in these local jurisdictions, in these countries, these third world countries where there is no appropriate method for redress. And if you, the U.S. is almost like the form of last resort, that protectionist attitude of, well, we don't want to be, the U.S. should not be the world's courtroom. At the same time, the argument behind this corporate responsibility is that if you're in this foreign country and your subsidiaries take action, and in some cases there have been really massive atrocities, and if you do not want to have any part in that, then there's ways to um, to make sure that doesn't happen. And again, having greater oversight, having greater accountability, and knowing right that the world is watching is one step to get us closer to that. And so big question, why does this all matter? Yeah, I think for all of the reasons stated that we want a robust global marketplace. We want an environment where there is foreign direct investment. We want corporations to be able to go in and revitalize uh, economies. It's interesting that the amount of money, uh, the 13 billion euros that uh, the Ireland case involved, where Apple's paying that. Ireland is a pretty developed nation, but that 13 billion that Apple is paying would fund Irish healthcare for a year, right? And so when you think of places that are much less developed than Ireland, and you can imagine how much revenue corporations are foregoing. Um, so I think connecting the two, connecting human rights and taxation is uh, is really logical. And I think also these opaque business practices in a rising global marketplace, we don't want to go in that direction. We want transparency. We want tr- transparency in business practices, which includes, and uh, in this human rights risk assessment, taxation should be a core element of that. I don't think it's really viable to separate the two any longer. So as a, for a final question, what should courts, companies, and regulators take away from your paper? I think what should be taken away from the paper is a recognition of the possibility, the possibility to move the dial forward, to not um, take away from Uh, necessarily, right, any uh, foreign business dealings uh, to take away from um, even aggressive tax planning. But I think that the tipping point is where corporations are not paying taxes, corporations are not being being held accountable for for torts in in foreign jurisdictions because of these increased uh, corporate protections. So I think that it should be my paper should be viewed as a whole on an argument toward um, being responsible corporate global citizens and showing that, you know, they're really, that we're all connected. We all have a stake in countries uh, assisting the U.S. and assisting U.S. companies in generating revenue, but at the same time, 
these U.S. companies are also recognizing the importance of uh, being um, careful, right, with the the countries that they're operating within and that they care about um, the the livelihood and the health and ongoing, um, you know, like the economic resurgence of these of these uh, jurisdictions. Well, thank you very much, Professor Linus Flanagan, for coming on the podcast to talk about your very interesting and intriguing work. Thank you so much, Luce. I appreciate it. Sam, old man taxes, here I am, and he was glad to see me. Mr. Small Fry, yes, indeed, lower brackets, that my speed, and he was glad to see me. I paid my income tax today. I never felt so proud before to be right there with millions more who paid their income tax today. I'm squared up with the USA. You see those bombers in the sky. Rockefeller helped to build them, so did I. I paid my income tax today. We paid our income tax today. We never cared what Congress spent, but now we watch your every cent, examine every bill they pay. They'll have to let us have our say. I wrote the Treasury to go slow. Careful, Mr. Henry Jr., that's my dough. I paid my income tax today. 